you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books, at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie sounds like your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 1989's The Burbs, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing, I would be ever so appreciative. So The Burbs is one of those movies that has just kind of always been there for me. Several of the movies I've talked about are that, especially if it's an 80s movie. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I don't know if we checked it out at the library or blockbuster family video. I don't know if it was just kind of passing by on TBS, USA, TNT, that kind of thing. But it's one that I just remember seeing young and it has stuck with me, particularly the line, Red Rover, Red Rover, sent art right over. Thought that was the funniest thing ever for some reason. It's also one of those movies that I distinctly remember my father cracking up several times. Um, just there, there are those movies that would just tickle his funny bone and he would be laughing. The scene would be over. You'd think we would move on. He'd get up to do something in the kitchen and then you'd just hear him cackling in the kitchen again because he'd been thinking about it all over again. This could happen for days. Uh, anytime you get the right kind of joke with my dad, it just stays with him and you can get him going at any particular moment. So it's, it's one of those movies for me that I... It's kind of endearing. Uh, the rewatch was a little different than I anticipated. I had not seen it in a while. It was still good. I still enjoyed it. Uh, it's a little crazier than I remember, though, if that's possible. Um, but it's just a fun 80s movie if you've not seen it. I highly recommend it. If you are, if you are in a neighborhood where there is a lot of gossip, you'll probably like this movie. If you like to just sit on next door and just watch the train wreck that is... <laughs> The conversation you might like this movie if you've ever kind of peeked out your blinds to watch somebody across the street this might be the movie for you it, it just I, I wonder what this movie would have been like in the the day of Facebook groups and and next door the next door app I think it, it would have been complete because you think it's crazy but I see this stuff happening on our our neighborhood Facebook group all the time uh, they they had to like put a moratorium on posting for a while because it just was a dumpster fire, which I find hilarious because then people just wave at you and you're like, oh, I know what you said online. Uh, you're crazy. I'm going to avoid your house at all costs. So it's, it's just a fun dynamic, especially when you think of the suburbs, that this is a very typical thing. We are all right on top of each other in this kind of mundane, repetitive kind of world. You get up, you go to work, you come back, you cook dinner, you maybe cut the grass, you do it all over again. And so we're just kind of in that mode in the suburbs. And so people do get bored. So it kind of makes sense. So if that is you, if you like to watch your neighbors, uh, I highly recommend this movie because I, I tried to imagine as I was watching, like, who am I in this scenario? And I'm not going to spoil it. I will tell you later who I am in the scenario. Um, but we, we all, if you live in the suburbs, there's one, there's an art, there's a Mark, there's a Walter, <laughs> There's a Carol. Uh, there's a Ray. There, you, you see these characters in your everyday life in the suburbs as well. Before we dive into a little context for the movie, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer. 
The Burbs was directed by Joe Dante and written by Dana Olson. I did not know if Dana was a man or a woman, but I figured it out as it is a gentleman. Um, and we've, we've actually heard about him before. So we discussed Joe a bit several episodes ago when we talked about Inner Space starring Dennis Quaid. As a recap, Joe Dante has also directed Gremlins 1 and 2, which just about every cast member <laughs> in Gremlins is in this movie except for the, the lead guy. Uh, Matt Nay starring John Goodman. That was really good. Well, we're going to have to do that one eventually because I really like that one. There's that nostalgic feel of something like Pleasantville in that one I really like. And, of course, he also directed Looney Tunes Back in Action starring the one and only Brendan Fraser. We've also talked, as I mentioned, about Dana Olson. He wrote... George of the Jungle, also starring the one and only Brendan Fraser. So we have talked about Dana. Um, I was doing a little bit of internet sleuthing. Screenwriter Dana Olson based the script on experiences from his own childhood. He said, I had an ultra-normal middle-class upbringing, but our town had its share of psychos. As a kid, it was fascinating to think that Mr. Flanagan down the street could turn out to be Jack the Ripper. And where there's fear, there's comedy. So I approached the Burbs as Ozzie and Harriet meets <laughs> Charles Manson. Olson's script attracted producer Larry Bresner, who brought it to Imagine Films. It was greeted with a warm reception from Imagine co-founder Brian Grazer. Uh, Grazer said, I like the concept of a regular guy taking a vacation in his own neighborhood. Plus, it was funny and well-written. It suddenly dawned on me that Joe Dante would be fantastic as a director because it's a mixture of comedy, horror, and reality, which is pretty... A pretty good description of something like Gremlins, that it is purely a comedy, but it is there's a horror elements to it that's kind of scary, but then it's also got this reality mixture. It's not a fantastical world. It's a world we know where maybe there's a little fantastical element in it. Dante, who specialized in offbeat subject matter, was intrigued by the blending of real-life situations with elements of the supernatural. When I tell people about the story, a remarkable number say, oh, my grandmother's block. There were people like that. They never mowed their lawn, and they never came out, and they never let their mail, and they let their mail stack up, and nobody knew who they were. And I must confess that in my own neighborhood, there's a house like that, falling to rack and ruin. I think this is perhaps a more common event than most people are aware of. So The Burbs was filmed entirely at Universal Studios over 10 weeks in the summer of 88, mainly on the Colonial Street set on the back lot, which served as the Mayfield Place cul-de-sac. That's where they lived. I can't think of many pictures since Lifeboat that all take place in the same area, Dante said, as production got underway. There was a lot of temptation to broaden it and go outside the neighborhood, but it seemed to violate the spirit of the piece. It's almost the kind of thing that would be a stage play, except that you can never do on stage what we've done in this movie. The Colonial Street set had been used in 87's Dragnet, also starring Hanks. Uh, at the time the Burbs began production, it was being used as the location for the new Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> to ensure that set would fit the tone of the film, Dante said, I asked production designer James Spencer, a veteran of Poltergeist and Gremlins, if he thought he could turn that street into the neighborhood we needed in that period of time. Spencer rose to the challenge, and within a few days, they began work on sketching out the proposed designs for the set. Spencer observed, we had to be on the spot. Due to the lack of time, it would have been ludicrous to do our drawing elsewhere. The orchestral soundtrack for the film was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. And guess what? We've talked about Jerry Goldsmith before. Goldsmith composed the 1999 smash hit The Mummy, also starring the one and only Brendan Fraser. Just had to throw that in. Um, Goldsmith also did Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Tora Tora Tora, Patton, Papillion, Chinatown, 
Is that Papillion Papillon? I don't know what that is. <laughs> the Omen Alien Poltergeist, The Secret of Nim, Medicine Man, Gremlins, Hoosiers, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Air Force One, and L.A. Confidential. Oh, and Mulan. So he has done a lot of movies that you might be familiar with. The Burb stars, of course, Tom Hanks as Ray Peterson, Carrie Fisher as Carol Peterson, Bruce Dern, who is my favorite in the film, as Mark Rumsfeld, Corey Feldman as Ricky Butler, Rick Ducommon as Art Weingartner, Weingartner, Wendy Shaw as Bonnie Rumsfeld. So, okay, I'll just keep going. Henry Gibson as Dr. Werner Klopek, Theodore Gottlieb as Ruben Klopek, Courtney Gaines as Hans Klopek, Gail Gordon as Walter Sesnick, and Dick Miller and Robert Picardo as Garbage Men. Dante really likes, apparently falls in love with actors and uses them over and over and over again because uh, Wendy, Henry, and Robert Picardo are all in, and Dick Miller are all in inner space. And I know at least Dick Miller and Robert Picardo are also in Gremlins, either Gremlins 1 or Gremlins 2. Actually, I think Dick Miller's in both and Robert Picardo's just in number two. So he falls in love with these actors and he uses them over and over. Dante, Bresner, and Fennell, I don't know who Fennell is, agreed that Tom Hanks would be the most suitable actor to portray the married Ray Peterson, a conservative man who tries to introduce excitement into his life by investigating the activities of his strange neighbors. Dante referred to Hanks as the reigning everyman, a guy that everybody can identify with, comparing him to James Stewart, which I can see that. Hanks accepted the role of Ray with enthusiasm enthusiasm later saying what's so bizarrely interesting about this black psych psycho comedy is that the stuff that goes on in real life in a regular neighborhood will make your hair stand up on the back of your neck he was also intrigued by his character's distinctive personality traits sometimes there's more of an opportunity to create than others here's a guy with a great life a nice house a wife a beautiful tree a nice neighborhood and he's happy next day he hates it all I thought something must have happened to him offstage, and that's the challenge for me of the part, to communicate Ray's off-screen dilemma. One of the reasons Ray doesn't go away on vacation is because it's another extension of the normalcy he's fallen into. So he thinks he'll try a more bohemian thing, which is to just hang around the house with a week's worth of free time on his hands. Ray is drawn into the preoccupations of his neighbors who always seem to be at home. But what I did is just backstory embellishment that any actor will do, perhaps from my repertory experience. I don't ask a director for motivation. If he says, go over to the window, I find the reason myself. <laughs> an actor. Look at that. Box office report. The movie had an estimated budget of about $18 million. It opened at number one in the box office and made $11 million during its opening weekend, uh, which was February 17th of 89. Overall in the U.S., the film made $36 million, 36.6, and then 49.1 worldwide. Just to give you a recap, we have talked about 89 before, um, but just a reminder of the top 10 grossing movies to see what The Burbs was up against. You have in first place Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Second is Batman starring Michael Keaton. Third, Back to the Future Part 2. Look Who's Talking, Dead Poet Society, The Little Mermaid, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, and a lot of sequels, and Born on the 4th of July. So Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times at the time gave it two out of four stars, writing, The Burbs tries to position itself somewhere between Beetlejuice and the Twilight Zone, but it lacks the dementia of the first and the wicked intelligence of the second, and turns instead to a long, shaggy dog story. <laughs> that is rough. Man, Ebert is just, he just 
digs that knife in. Um, it has a 55% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, but the critical consensus reads the Burbs has an engaging premise, likable cast, and Joe Dante at the helm, so the mixed-up genre ec exercise they produce can't help but feel like a disappointment. Dun, dun, dun. It's one of those 80s movies that isn't great, but you love it anyway, so watch it. You should watch it. Have you seen this one? I would love to hear if you've seen this one or not. A quick summary. So Ray Peterson is on vacation. And again, that's Tom Hanks. All he wants is a quiet week at home, puttering around the house and doing nothing. But Ray Peterson lives in the suburbs on a rather chaotic cul-de-sac next to this really super creepy house that looks like maybe Norman Bates lives there and across the street from the most annoying man on the face of the planet. If, if you can close your eyes and picture a neighbor you don't want to have, I think Art's face would pop up. Ray doesn't get his quiet week at home. Instead, Ray and his neighbors become convinced that something nefarious is happening in that super creepy house, the Klopek house, when Walter, the old man down the street, disappears, and then Hans Klopek drives the garbage down the driveway to the garbage can, so just out of the garage, down the driveway. Nobody had ever seen that before. And Ray sees the three Klopek men digging in the backyard during a rainstorm. There's nothing these neighbors won't do to get to the bottom of the crazy, including breaking and entering, theft, burning down a house. Uh, they will stop at nothing until they find out what is going on. A few thoughts I had uh, while watching this movie. So it becomes very clear, Carol, who is Ray's wife, she's like, why, why are we not on vacation? You're on vacation. You are home. Why are we not going somewhere? And mentions that they have a lake house on a couple of occasions. If I had a lake house and a week off from work, I would be at that lake house all the time, especially during the summer. And if I were Carol, I would have left my husband at the house to eavesdrop on the neighbors for some lake time. I'd be like, fine, you know what? You do you. I am just going to go. It drives me nuts. She eventually leaves to go see her sister or something like that. But it's like, why? You have a lake house. Why are you not there? Leave your husband. He's cranky. He needs some time alone. Just let him do him. Art, as I mentioned, is the worst neighbor ever. He eats all their food, just kind of comes in, opens their their refrigerator and just helps himself to food. It's one thing, like he comes in at breakfast time and Carol's cooking breakfast and she makes him a plate. I see that. That does not bother me. But then he goes to the fridge, opens it up, takes out a whole casserole dish and a pineapple that had not been cut, and just leaves the house with it. Who, do, who does that? <laughs> he is the worst. He has no sense of boundaries. The, we first meet him because he's just walking around his yard with a gun and he's shooting at birds. The man should be locked away. He is, how he has a wife, I don't know. But at the same time, so that can be true. We can hold that in one hand. At the same time, he might actually be the one, guy you want around because he likes the gossip. So if if you want to know, um, if you're not interested in actually making friends in the neighborhood, but you want to know what's going on and you know the guy next door will tell you, he is the guy that you want to have around, you know, or you just have a pal who will just stare at the neighbors with you <laughs> under your breath. So both of those things can be true at the same time. Is that really the right guy that you want to have around the gossip guy? Probably not, but he, he might be a good time at the same time. But can you even imagine? Oh, say, so they... They believe something is going on in this house. There's loud noises. There's these bright lights from the basement. Um, the oddness of the characters, they look out of place. Hans looks like a, a very pale, um, 
he almost looks Amish with his beard that just kind of goes around the side and bottom of his chin. He's very pasty. They they have an accent as if they are Eastern European or some sort. Uh, they're just, they're kind of crazy. They grunt at you. They don't make eye contact. The house is falling apart. So there is a lot happening that would make you curious about what's happening in that house. But can you imagine what would have been posted about the Clopex on the Nextdoor app? I, it, I, I wish it was, I wish they would remake this and use social media because I think that would be fascinating. I wonder if Roger Ebert were alive, they did a remake and included that element if he would have thought differently because it, it seems outlandish, but at the same time, people are doing some crazy stuff anyway behind closed doors. And if I'm anybody in this neighborhood... I am Corey Feldman. I am Ricky Butler. He is this young kid who just keeps saying, I love this street. I love this street. Um, And he kind of interacts with all of the adults. He is clearly a teenager, late teenager. um, And he just is an observer. I can totally see myself popping popcorn and settling into a chair on my porch just to kind of watch the chaos that is about to unfold. And that is what he does. He invites all of his friends over. They could go out on the town. He has a date and he's, she's like, why are we not at a movie or something? He goes, no, no, this is better than a movie. So it just, I think I could, I could be him where I get to stay home and observe and not actually get into the middle of it. Cause I don't like to be a part of drama, but sometimes witnessing drama can be kind of fun. The whole premise is that the Klopex have been in this house for a month And before them, an older couple lived there. A month isn't a long enough time to make the house look like like a doomsday scenario. So shame on the neighbors for not helping out the older couple who let the house get into that state. They don't remember seeing a moving truck, so they don't remember the, the couple leaving. But it's like you, this did not happen over the course of a month. This had to have been happening. So why didn't you offer to help them with your yard or or fixing something, or checking on them that they were okay. Shame on them. There is a scene where Ray and Carol are watching Jeopardy. In their hands are small legal pads, and they keep jotting stuff down after every question. They both have a legal pad. They are yelling out all of the wrong answers for Jeopardy, and because they don't seem to know the answer, and then they are jotting something down as if it's some sort of competition, but I don't know why they would both need a legal pad. What in the world do you think they're doing? I, I just, I can't imagine, maybe one where you're tallying who got it right, but why do they both have to have the legal pad? What are they writing? And it's not just tally marks, like they're going for it with their pens and paper. It's odd. So the Klopex basement is never explained. Right after that Jeopardy scene, uh, Art goes to get Ray. They come out and they and they get Mark Rumsfeld, who is a veteran who has all this military gear, and so he has an infrared kind of telescope. And they're they're watching the house, waiting to see if anything crazy happens. And all of a sudden, this loud, loud, loud noise emanates from the the basement. It looks like something has kind of blown up in it. There's this loud boom and lights. That is never explained. <laughs> So at towards the end of the movie, spoiler, Ray and Art break into the house. They end up in the basement. They are digging around, and they, they discuss about how there is this furnace that is far bigger than is needed in a house that size. And I don't, I just, but I, furnaces don't make that noise. And there's a, at the scene where they're watching through the infrared telescope, 
all of a sudden there's a flash of lightning that hits one of those, I don't know what they're called, I'm sorry, one of those poles at the top of the house, like that is supposed to catch the energy so it doesn't cause issues, right, of the lightning. Um, which makes you then wonder, is this like a Frankenstein thing? If it's Dr. Klopek, is he then trying to, is, is he trying to create life down in the basement? I don't know. That never gets explained and it drives me nuts. Um, I mean, you do find out what happens to the older couple and that, that the Klopaks are not who they appear to be, but that part never gets explained and it drives me nuts. There's many times in this movie when they could have called the cops, where they should have called the cops, but they didn't. A simple wellness check on the Klopex or Walter. So Walter's the old guy who has the pristine lawn. He has this little dog that goes and goes to the bathroom in everybody else's front yard and drives everybody nuts. And he just kind of disappears. But the dog, who is his baby, is left wandering around. And so they find the dog and they go knock on the door like any sane people would do to see if Walter is there and he's not there. They didn't break into his home, which is not great. They notice what appears to be a bit of a struggle. They leave a note saying, hey, the dog is over at Ray's house. Um, but they they could, like, they should have called the cops then. We don't, there was chairs knocked over. Here's this dog. We don't know where Walter is. Did they call the cops? No. Did they ever call the cops with the Klopex and just say, we've not seen anybody. We're hearing weird noises. There's kind of a smell. Can you can you check on this family? Did they ever do that? No. You know, call the cops before the breaking and entering. It gets so chaotic. I do enjoy it, though. I um, Off topic, so the scene where they break into Walter's house, Mark Rumpsfeld, played by Bruce Dern, who is fantastic, he has this flowered shirt and khakis look with these black boots. That looks, He looks really good. I was like, I like that look on you, Mark. And my final thought as I was watching, the thing I find the weirdest in the whole movie is when the wives finally get fed up and force the guys to go over with them to the Klopex for an introduction. Mark Rumsfeld, played by Bruce Dern, he's very nosy and he's just looking at everything, making comments about everything inside of the house. I would not have gone inside of that house. I would have been like, hey, why don't you come over for a barbecue? I would not have gone inside of that house. But he's walking around, and then all of a sudden he starts just peeling off the wallpaper, off the walls. You can't fix that. Who would do that? Who would walk? I don't care if you think something curious is going on. You do not go into another person's home and peel off their wallpaper. That can't be fixed. They have to, they have to redo the whole wall. Oh, so weird. I love it. A few interesting tidbits about the movie. Walter's toy poodle, Queenie, the one that gets left out that they find and they eventually break into Walter's home about, was played by the same dog that played Precious in The Silence of the Lambs, which came out in 91. The film, as I mentioned, was shot in sequence on the Universal lot, and it was filmed during the writer's strike of 88. So the film was rushed into production to avoid a Writers Guild of America's strike. Principal photography began, this, began the same day the strike went into effect on May 19th, 88. Although Dana Olson, the writer, appeared in the film, he was prohibited from contributing anything to the script while on set. So for this reason, Joe Dante encouraged the actors to improvise many scenes. One example was the moment when Rumsfeld rips the Klopex wallpaper, an idea from Bruce Dern. Rick Ducommon ad-libbed many of his lines. He plays art, uh, including the Satan is good, Satan is our pal dialogue. And Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher came up with the idea of playing along with Jeopardy. 
Were they writing the answers? Is that what they were doing then? I don't know. I'm going to have to try to play Jeopardy that way. I don't know. And finally, the house where Ricky Butler, played by Corey Feldman, lives was the same as where The Munsters in 64 was filmed. I love that. Does this movie hold up? You know, I kind of do think it holds up. I do think these men would be arrested and thrown into jail, and that does not happen, uh, which is a little far-fetched. But as I mentioned, I can't help but wonder what somebody like Roger Ebert would think of it today in a world where everyone is snooping and gossiping online. It's not as far-fetched as you think, um, and there are crazy people out there, especially in your neighborhood. All right, movie night recommendation, a good double feature. I would pair this with 1988's Finding Farm. Now, I'm not the biggest Chevy Chase fan. I actually don't care for him all that much, but there are a few movies that I do enjoy, and I've always had kind of a soft spot for this particular movie. It makes no sense why. Um, It's not an overly great movie, but... Something about it tickled my funny bone. It's about a couple who swap city life for the country, but their picturesque new hometown turns out to be just a little bit different to what they were expecting. There's a lot of kooky neighbors in this. There's a lot of house mishaps much like this. Um, So it's a lot of fun. You should check out Funny Farm if you have not. And my book recommendation... I might have talked about this book before, but I'll talk about it again, is The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Patricia Campbell's life has never felt smaller. Her husband is a workaholic. Her teenage kids have their own lives. Her senile mother-in-law needs constant care, and she's always a step behind on her endless to-do list. The only thing keeping her sane is her book club, a close-knit group of Charleston women united by their love of true crime. At least these meetings, they're as likely to talk about the Manson family as they are to talk about their own families. One evening after a book club, Patricia is viciously attacked by an elderly neighbor, bringing the neighbor's handsome nephew, James Harris, into her life. James is well-traveled and well-read, and he makes Patricia feel things she hasn't felt in years. But when children on the other side of town go missing... Their deaths written off by local police. Patricia has reason to believe James Harris is more of a Bundy than a Brad Pitt. The real problem? James is a monster of a different kind, and Patricia has already invited him in. Dun, dun, dun. Um, spoiler, it's in the title. He's a vampire. But um, again, this is when the creepy people live in next door that you just don't know their story. It's a lot of fun. It's funny. Grady Hendrix is really funny. Um, And also creepy. I had to put it down a couple times as I was reading it because it started to freak me out. And that is all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast again, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. And I will see you next time.